The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, when you walked here on the earth, you invited little children to come to you. called them to you. You still call them to you. You're concerned that children and their children and the children after them and those after them, that they come to you and that you build down through generations faithfulness, that you build a church through family lines. And we praise you for that concern that you have. We care about our kids too and we're thankful that you care about them more. Lord, we're also aware that you have not left them by themselves to find their way to you, but you've given them parents, us, many of us. And so, Lord, this morning as we open your word, would you speak through it and and would you help us to think through this issue, the role of parents in the lives of children, and would you, as one of the results of this morning, would you use it as a piece of, It shapes and builds our hearts and bring, as a result, Lord, I want to pray that there would be no children lost from this generation. That in our church, that as this generation of kids grew up, that that none of them would lose you. That you would produce something here remarkable. That you would grab hold of each one of these children. You are God. It is up to you. But that's our prayer, and that we we pray that you would use us, that you would inform us this morning about some of our role in it as church and family, that you would grab hold of each of them. And Lord, I even pray that some of those who have already gone on and have become adults and have wandered, Lord, call them back. Lord, would you produce change this morning, perhaps even, in some parents' lives that affect how they deal with their adult children? Produce positive fruit from that. Again, you are God. Nothing that we're going to say or do this morning is going to make anything happen. But I pray, Lord, would you use it, please? Draw our children to you and as part of that, use us. And shape us who are parents and those of us who are not to support parents and minister to parents and are around parents. Shape us this morning to be instruments in your hands. Lord, would you do that? Would you open up your word? Would you speak to your church? And would you change us? And I pray this in Christ's name, for his glory, and for the good of us, your people. Amen. This little booklet is a a helpful booklet. It's called Just Family Worship. And when I return this one to the book table, I think we'll have one or two copies out there. And you can get it online. But I want to share a couple things from this little booklet. First, the story of, of a man who says, He and his four siblings all decided to, at their parents' 50th wedding anniversary, give them each a an honoring gift. To tell them as a way of honoring them one thing that they appreciate about their parents over the last decades and independent of each other they decided what to give them and all of them 
told their mother the thing they most appreciated was her prayers for them. And all of them independently told their father the thing they most appreciated about him was his leadership of their family worship time. One of the siblings said, Dad, my oldest living memory is of tears streaming down your face as you led us through Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday night and taught us about how God leads His children faithfully through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God used you, Dad, he said, when I was only three years old to convict me of the truth of Christianity. And I, and I wandered away later in life, but I could never seriously doubt it because of how God used you on those Sunday nights after Sunday nights after Sunday nights. Family worship. And then there's this from a 2003 Barna Research Survey. 85% of parents with children under the age of 13 believe that they themselves have the primary responsibility for teaching their children about religious beliefs and spiritual matters. 85%. That's not just Christians, that's parents. Evidently nobody wants the government teaching their kids about religion. Surprise. However, this is a still quotation, however, a majority of parents don't spend any time during a typical week discussing religious matters or studying religious materials with their children. Parents generally rely upon their church to do all of the religious training their children will receive. End quote. 85% of people, we don't want other people doing it. It's our job. Most of them then turn around and say, let's have you do it. That's the issue that God's going to address for us this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The issue of the widespread abdication by parents of our responsibility to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's a responsibility given to us. It is a privilege and an opportunity. And it is given to us as parents. Now, the Bible clearly calls parents this, and most of us recognize it. I mean, if it's 85% of people out there, I imagine it's much higher in here. Most of us recognize that it's, it's our job, it's on our shoulders. And most of us, I think, grasp some sense of how important it is in the lives of our children, but I think many of us struggle with this. We struggle with it. We've either largely given up on it, or we're doing it in a rather haphazard way, or we're confused about it, or there's a lot of guilt in our hearts about it because either we're not doing it, or we have a sense that it's too late, I already failed. And I hope across all that spectrum... God will speak this morning through Deuteronomy 6. He'll speak to us as parents and us as kids. If you're, if you're a, a second grader or if you're a high schooler here this morning, there's a word here for you in this too, in that God is telling us something here about how families are supposed to work. And you're a part of a family. It's not just telling dad and mom, it's telling families. And so you should know how it is that you're supposed to respond in your home to your parents. So receive from them what they're trying to do. It's for your good. And if you're an adult here and you, and you don't have children at home, you don't have children yet, you don't have children at home anymore, there's still a word for, for you here. 
There's still some things that you can apply here that even if your kids are gone, might have an effect on them. But all of us, at least, at the very least, all of us are in a church. We're in a church family. And we all need to clearly understand how it is that God has ordered relationships. And to realize that as a church, and as part of even a Christian school, that we are to realize that we have a larger ministry to equip the frontline workers, parents, in their primary calling to raise their children to the Lord. That's where we're going this morning. As we've been working through the book of Deuteronomy, we've already passed through the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and last week we looked at the greatest commandment in chapter 6, the Shema. Charlie read it already. Get to it again in a minute. The great commandment there. And last week we, we spent our time dealing with chapter 6 and the main thrust of that chapter in how our hearts are addressed individually, each one of us, how our hearts are called out to hear and to follow the Lord and to love Him with everything that we have. That was the main point of the chapter we looked at that last week. And this week, we're going to take verse 7 as a launching point. And we're not going to talk about the main point so much. We'll touch on it a little bit, but we're going to be really emphasizing a sub-point. We're going to be using this chapter, and especially that verse, although we'll look at other pieces of the chapter, to address the issue of parents and kids. And how God means for the family to be structured. So we're, we're kind of leaning on a sub-point here this morning as we deal with chapter 6 from a different angle. So I'm going to read the chapter again, and then though I summarized it last week, I'm going to touch on a few things, because in case you weren't here, you need to kind of get a little bit of the flow of the chapter, and as a refresher to those who were here. And then I'm going to move into some overarching observations. So let me read Deuteronomy chapter 6 again. Read the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you were going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care 
lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And He brought us out from there that He might bring us in and give us the land that He swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that He might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. The Word of the Lord. As we noted last week, verse 1 begins with Moses getting ready to deliver the commandment. Notice it's in the singular, just as it is in the very last verse, verse 25, the singular commandment. When we talk about the law, there are obviously a whole host of commandments and rules and statutes and stipulations and exceptions and lots of different stuff. That's the, the commandments in the plural. But it is fair to say, as the text does, that all of that can be summarized in a commandment. The commandment. The greatest commandment, Jesus called it. That's what's coming up here in the passage. Expressed in all of its various ways, this is the commandment that is to be followed and which will lead to blessing. Verses 2 and 3 clarify. Follow this. Hold to the Lord in obedience and it will lead to blessing. And be careful in verses 10 to 19 that when you come into the blessing that you not get confused and forget about Him and think that all of this great stuff that should be evidence of God's work in your life becomes a distraction from God. Watch out. Don't turn aside and fear other gods or else you will arouse the jealousy of God who requires the love that is due Him. So don't test Him. Hold fast to Him. Hold to this commandment and it will be your blessing. What's the commandment? That's verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the one and only. The Lord, in all capital letters, is His name. This guy is the President. This one is God. That's what the Lord is God is saying. Yahweh is God. 
The one and only. So, therefore, here's the commandment, verse 5. Love Him. Love Him only. Love Him with everything. With all of your heart. With all of your soul. With all of your might. And these words must be on your heart. Verse 6. The commandment, summing up all of the other commandments, summing up the Ten Commandments, summing up the Bible, the thing that God requires from His people is their hearts. That's what they do. He's not primarily concerned with what you do. That'll come later. That comes from hearts. But He's after hearts. This is the commandment. Love. And it must be in your heart. And then verse 7, teach your children this too. Teach this, these words. Teach them to your children. Teach them diligently. Teach them carefully. Teach them all the time. That's the point of all the contrasts there. When you're sitting in your house and when you're walking out and about town. When you go to bed and when you get up. All the time. All of time and all of space. Teach these things to your kids. And as you're discussing all these things, as you're kind of moving through life, your son may ask you someday, verse 20, what's the big picture here? What does this mean? I mean, I got all the little pieces, but what does it mean? And then you will say to him, you'll tell him the story of redemption. Just 20 and following. You will tell him about how you were slaves in Egypt and I acted with a mighty hand to deliver you, crushing your foes and delivering you into bounty, which you can have forever and ever and ever if you hold fast to him, son. This will be righteousness for us if we do all of this command, verse 25 comes back to the command. This will be righteousness for us before God, right standing before God, if we perfectly hold to this commandment, which as we elaborated on last week, we don't. Which points you to the one who did. The perfect son. Matthew chapter 4, we went there and saw how Jesus quoted from this chapter twice in Matthew 4 to make a point. I am the one who keeps the commandment. I am the one who is righteous, the only one. And I will become righteousness for you because I kept the commandment if you trust me. That's the text. A lot of other things there in the passage. If you want to hear more about it, go online and listen to last week's sermon. It's a quick pass through though. And this morning, as I said, we're going to use verse 7 a lot to hit a sub-point. Parents and kids. So let me give the, the main point for this morning's sermon from this passage in a sentence, kind of a long one. God has called parents, God has called parents to raise their children to know the Lord. So embrace this high calling with everything in you. God has called parents, primarily parents, first parents, to raise their children to know the Lord. So parents, embrace that. Church, embrace that. Kids, embrace that with everything in you. 
That's the main point. I'm going to divide it into three parts this morning. I'm going to essentially ask who, what, and how. By the time we get to the how, I hope to be giving a little bit of detail. We're going to start with who, and then what, and then how. First, who. Who's he talking to? And this is obvious, but sometimes it helps us to look at the obvious, think about it, and let it kind of wash over us and work into us. So here's the first point. God has assigned to parents the primary responsibility of raising kids to know Him. Who? Parents. Verse 7, right after giving the great commandment, love the Lord with everything in you, this must be on your heart, verse 7, and then you shall teach these words diligently, to whom? To your children, obviously talking to parents. Same thing, verse 20, when your son asks you, obviously he's talking to parents there. He's giving instruction to parents about how to deal with their kids, how to teach their kids, and it's that way throughout the book of Deuteronomy. If you're at the men's retreat back at the end of May, we, we looked at a number of verses throughout this book. I'm going to pull out a couple of them here this morning, but there are more. As we go through it, you'll see them. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. There at Mount Horeb, God reveals Himself in, in, stun, in a stunning display, and He calls the people... He tells them to come and then see this and then make this known to your children and to your children's children. Picturing the head of of a house and there would be a, a line, children and children's children. You make this known down the line. Parents. In verse 10, he tells Moses, tell the people to come up here so that they can teach this to their children. Parents teaching children. Chapter 11, which is very similar to chapter 6. So some very similar things in chapter 11 and in chapter 6. And in 11, verse 2, he adds another little parenthetical comment. Why do you have to teach this to your kids? Because he says to the parents, I'm not talking to your children who don't know these things. I'm talking to you and telling you to teach them. The kids don't know. They don't know. Who tells them? Parents. Teach them. Repeatedly, explicitly. And as he moves on in the book, later we're going to come to some of the large festivals and feasts of Israel. And several times in those sections, there are these phrases about bring your whole household, including your servants and your son and your daughter, and bring your children to the feast, the corporate worship setting. Bring your children to the feast that they can eat of this sacrifice with you. Right by your side. Bring your children so that they can hear and learn this song that I'm teaching. So that it will stick in their heads. Chapter 31 talks about the, the every seven years they would read the whole of the law. Bring your son and your daughter to hear the law read. Where are son and daughter sitting? They're listening to the whole law. Can you imagine reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy with your son and your daughter by your side. What are you going to be doing with them? Explaining. There's going to be a lot that needs to be tracked. And he or she is sitting right here so that you can pass it on while the whole law is read. And at the end, in his kind of summary warning in chapter 32, he says, take this to heart and command it to your children. Parents. Parents. Throughout the whole book, 
the assumption is, individually, privately, and even in a corporate worship setting, that parents are side by side with their kids, passing on to them the truth about God. It's everywhere. Parents, teach this great commandment diligently to your children. Both parents, mom included. Especially if for one reason or another, mom has become the head of the house. Through an absence of a, of a husband, for one reason or another, if mom's the head of the house, this is clearly talking to you. And even if there is a husband, it's still talking to you, but we have to recognize an assumed cultural reality here. So assumed that it's not stated. While we say parents, the assumption is fathers. The assumption is that when your son goes to ask you a question, he's asking dad. The assumption is that when someone commands the children, that's dad commanding the children. When someone teaches, that's dad teaching. That's the, the, the wide assumption given male headship of the home that's established in the law. It's so assumed that when Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter 6, he just says, fathers, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not meaning, mothers, I'm not talking to you in any way whatsoever, you have nothing to do with this. doesn't mean that. He just means fathers, especially you, you first. If parents are in front, dad's in front of, dad's in front of mom. Fathers. Adam is the head of the home. We see that in the Garden of Eden. Who sins first? Eve. Who does God come to talk to? Adam. If this doesn't happen in your home, there will be a reckoning between dad and God. It's the way it is. So we say, parents and fathers, but both parents, diligently teach your kids. Impart these truths to them. This is the charge from God in the scriptures. And it is not delivered to school teachers nor Sunday school teachers, nor youth pastors, nor senior pastors. All of them are useful. We have some of each. All of them have their place. But their place is especially to equip those who are charged to raise their children. Parents, especially fathers. And right there, we, the modern church, and our church included, have a problem with this. To far too great a degree, we parents, and especially fathers, have dropped the ball on this high calling. We just have to, to say it like it is. To far too great a degree, we have surrendered this and given it over to someone else. Maybe fathers have given it over to mom, Maybe parents, we've given it over to the church, the youth group, Christian school, some, some other thing, we've given it over. We take it on ourselves, you know, it's not the government's job, it's ours, and then what we turn it into is it's our job to select who else does it. It's not what, not, it's not what God wants, and it's not going to work. He doesn't give pointless commands. God gives commands that line up with the reality that He's created. Remember this from the Ten Commandments, how we saw repeatedly all these commandments 
They, they connect to God and his being, but they also connect right into society. If you live a life of theft, you're going to bump into some problems in society. If you live a life of dishonesty, you're going to bump into some problems in society. As fathers abdicate their role of teaching their kids, we're going to bump into some problems in society. Because of how God has made people and how he has made families. There is something that's really hard to put your finger on and explain how it is, but it's just a truth. What dad is passionate about, what has dad's heart, what leaks out of him will be known by everyone in the family and will influence them. It just is. You are the leaders of your home, men. I did not say there, God calls you to be the leaders of your home. You are. We are. The only question is, what kind of leadership are we going to exhibit? We're going to do something or another this afternoon in our homes, and tomorrow and next week, and it's going to guide our homes one way or another. If you leave and you're gone for the whole week, you're still influencing your home. He's called us to this. Now, graciously, God still works in broken situations and with absent fathers and with irresponsible fathers and with imperfect fathers. Thank God, because that means there's still hope for me. And I mean that. I, I, I can stand up here and I can unload on you wearing a tie, looking like I've got it all together and I understand what it's saying. Uh, you go be a fly on the wall in my house. I'm a real person. Which means I'm a sinner. Which means I don't have half of this nearly as under control in my life as I can explain it. In, in, in some real ways, I am in the very same boat you're in, whichever boat that is. Because I'm all, I've got this down and woefully inadequate over here, and I'm working on some stuff in here. We're all there. But we have to at least acknowledge that there's a calling on us. Tied to how He has made us, men. And women, if you're the head of the home, but men... If you're in Christ, so I'm trying to balance something here. If you're in Christ, He is not about guilting you or beating you up or telling you how bad you are. So He's not about that. Perfectly, I'm not about that. But the other thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to awaken you. If you need to be awakened or if you are awake to encourage you. To awaken you to a fact that your sons and your daughters are growing up in a lost and hostile world and there is an enemy of their souls who is real and active and is prowling around looking for an opportunity to steal, kill, and destroy them. That is a fact. And it doesn't change if you have a demanding job. It doesn't. He doesn't say, oh, he's busy, I won't bother his family. Humanly speaking, 
Humanly speaking, we are the first and best line of defense against that. Are you asleep at your post? Wake up. Some of us are asleep. Some of us just doze repeatedly. Now, I think that some of what drives us away from this is confusion about what do I do and how do I do it, and I hope to touch on a few of some of that a little bit later. But we have to face something. One of the things that drives us away from this is that we have other values. Or to put it in the terms of the text, verse 6 is not real for us or not real enough. These words that I command you shall be on your heart. Gripped by, to use previous language, fearing in a biblical sense. Riveted on. Passionately loving, devoted. It's just not the case for us sometimes. We are, you know, Wednesday night and Sunday morning maybe. And then at other times during the week, it kind of comes on us and we realize, oh man. But then the world rushes in and that's what really grips us. So I can't just say, do it. You can't just say, I'm going to do it. What you've got to do is run back to last week's sermon. And say, God, would you do it in me? Would you so work in my heart that these words, this command lives in me and controls me in here so that what I see and what I love is you and your glory and your agenda and oh, that my kids would too. Who cares about more of this or that or the other? If my kids will know you, they'll know their joy. That's what I want. And it's in me and it will seep out and it will be contagious in your home. As we're looking at this, this calling on us, we need to remember last week and said this has to be true in us before we even try to pass it on. Because you won't try to pass it on if it's not true in you. So ask God for courage. Ask Him for grace to change you. Ask Him for forgiveness if you need to. Another thing I'm trying to balance here, and I need to balance, is I know that for some of us, the horse has already left the barn. And, and maybe as you look back on it, you say, man, I didn't even know what I was supposed to be doing. I wasn't even a Christian back then. Or I was, but I wasn't walking with Christ. I wasn't aware of that. Oh, I wish I could have that back. Or maybe you're just feeling guilty because your kids aren't walking with the Lord and, and you don't know what else you could have done. That could be too, because we're not God. We don't choose. It's not that if you do this and this and this, then God must do this. No, it's not that way. I heard a story once of a, uh, of, it was told about a godly man who was wrestling with his, uh, one of his son's early deaths. 30s or 40s, and he was on his deathbed from a direct, directly linked to some of the lifestyle that he had lived because of the sinful choices that he had made for decades. And it finally caught up with him and he's on his deathbed. And his dad is torn up about it, as you can imagine. 
And he's beating himself up. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And by the grace of God, this son had come back. He'd come to believe later in life and he'd come back to the faith of his fathers. And so he told him there on his deathbed, Dad, I have another brother who passionately walks with Christ. He did the same thing with both of us. We, we were in the same home. You said the same things. I didn't want it. I rejected it. There's nothing else you could have done. And look, it worked for him. And some of those seeds planted came back to me. I'm going to heaven. I know that. I'm going decades earlier than I thought I would because of some of my choices. I tell that story to point out that it's, it's not that if you do it just right and hold your mouth thus and so, then your kids will all turn out just fine and great. That's not, that's not the case. We're not promised that. And in this guy's life, he saw two complete difference, different results from the same thing. Graciously, his son pointed that out to him to relieve some of that guilt from him. So what I'm not saying here, that if you look at your family and say, oh, my kids aren't where they should be, that it's your fault that you did something wrong. And I'm not saying that if you do it right, nothing bad will happen to your kids. But the balance, what I have to also say, is that God uses means. And He's using means of parents to impart truth to their kids. So we must be wise and embrace this with everything that we have. Who parents, he is called, especially dads, to raise your kids to know the Lord. It is a responsibility and it is a great privilege. Can you imagine the privilege? There's a quote that I'm pulling from a a book. Can you imagine the privilege of being able to stand between your children and God and say, Father, let me introduce you to my kids. Kids, let me introduce you to the Lord our God. Awesome, isn't He? Glorious, isn't He? Let's go. For you to be in that spot is a tremendous privilege. And you can be. He's called you to it. He will equip you to do it. Trust Him. It's who. What do you say to them, though? What do you do? the second point. Parents are to impart to their children love for God in Christ. I'm going to state that and then I'll explain what I mean. What we're trying to impart to our kids is love for God in Christ. Verse 7 says, you shall teach them to your kids. What's that? Well, that's the words that in verse 6 were to rest on our hearts that come from verse 5. Verse 4. Here's the one and only God. Love Him with everything in you. Let that rest on your heart. Teach that to your kids. So what we're trying to teach to them is this full-hearted love for God that's in the heart. To impart to their hearts glorious, the glorious, gracious nature of God and the need to love Him. And in fact, we're trying to impart what we can't give. Actual love. Not just that they know they're supposed to love Him, but that they love Him. That's the goal, that we impart to them that they're supposed to love Him and that they actually love Him. 
and trust Him, fear Him in the biblical sense. That the little ones growing up in your home would know Him as the greatest treasure in all of life and that by your own hand they would be inoculated against the deadly idolatry that is rampant in the world and is growing in seed form even in their own hearts. So we're after the heart, love, fear, devotion in the heart, not behavior per se. We're after the heart. Behavior flows out of the heart and we are concerned about behavior, of course. But we have to be really clear on this. I think sometimes we think that we read maybe in Ephesians 6, raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And what that turns into in our minds is I want to keep them disciplined. And I want to tell them, instruct them what they are to do. Which could just raise Pharisees. Which we obviously don't want. We're after the heart. We're trying to impart to them not proper behavior, not biblical ethics and morals, not Bible knowledge about the, the details and the characters of the various Bible stories. We're trying to impart to them love for God in Christ living in here. That's huge. Because we can't give that. We're trying to do the impossible. Uh huh, we are. We're trying to do the impossible. So we need God. We must be people of prayer over this, obviously. But He will use means, and there's one particular way we can go about this that will give us great opportunity to be used to create love for Him in their hearts. And intellectually, you should be connecting this to last week, because it's the same way that it grows in us. By majoring on the message of the gospel. Verses 20 and following, the, 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 uh, the son says, Dad, what's, what's the big picture here? I'm seeing all the little slices. I'm seeing obey your mother. Don't steal. Don't sleep with anybody until I'm married to him. Okay, I mean, I'm seeing the little slices here, but what's the big... Why? What's the meaning behind all this? And what you tell him or her, is the story of redemption. That's what creates the context. It's the meaning, and it's also the what creates the motivation to follow Him in love. He tells them the Old Testament, physical, remember from last week, is paralleling the spiritual story of salvation. How God worked to bring his people out of slavery and in so doing showed himself with a mighty hand, displayed who he was, showed his his nature, his power, his wisdom, his grace, and brought them into a land of great bounty where he has preserved them alive as we are this day, son, he says. God has done that kind of a work. He has acted in the salvation plan, the the plan of redemption. So we sing that to our kids. Not just straight A to Z every single time, but sometimes we get A, sometimes a little bit of L and O and C and D, X. 
That becomes the curriculum. If you look at that, what you've got there, if you especially include verse 25, this would be righteousness for us if we were to keep all of this commandment. If you love him perfectly, this will be righteousness. But you don't, son, daughter. Look, right here, you don't. You need righteousness from somewhere else. The perfect son who kept this law. The whole thing, God revealed, acting, desirable, lovely, glorious, us separated from Him in need of righteousness, failing to find it in ourselves, needing to find it somewhere else in Christ. That whole thing becomes what we teach. Backwards and forwards, pieces here, over there a little bit. Not act like this. Do this. Shape up here. Yes, obviously we teach those things, but we use those things especially as opportunity to show, and look, you don't do that. You're a lawbreaker. This would be righteousness for you if you kept all of this commandment perfectly, but you don't. Look, how are you going to stand before God, son, daughter? Which runs right to the need for grace and Christ. From everywhere in all of life, you're working this, not just to get them to conform, but to get them to see, I need grace. I need to be changed. I'm wrong. I'm broken as I am. Help. And at that you say, Jesus, Jesus, grace. That's the same thing that works in us for us to be changed. Say, man, he's a good God. That's what works in our kids. Man, He's a good God. That He would respond to me, even me, like that. That He would act to save even me. Yeah. Lovely, isn't He? Love Him. God will do that in their lives. So you begin to think like this, and what it does is it shapes how you talk about stuff in the Bible. And you realize... I'm looking to reveal the character of God and their sin and God's work of grace. Have you ever taught your children or a Sunday school class or something the story of Noah's Ark and had that one kid who knows everything? Where you're talking about, okay, you know, where is Noah's Ark? Genesis 6. Okay, thank you. Um, how many sons? Three. Uh, okay. Uh, what did they make? Wood. How many? Two of each. You know, like, okay, what else do we talk about here? And will you wait to let some of the other kids answer the questions? But they know all the facts. And pretty soon, you don't know what else to talk about with the story of Noah's Ark. Animals two by two, etc. You work through all that. But if you're thinking like this, what I'm trying to impart is love for God in Christ. I'm trying to get at the heart and reveal the character of God and human, their human sinfulness and fallenness and the need for grace. You think like that and you realize Noah's Ark isn't about Noah at all. Noah's Ark, the story of Noah's Ark should be called God judges the world for sin and provides one way of salvation. Noah's Ark is about people in rebellion against the good God. And God holds out one way of salvation. The ark is being built for a long time. How long, Junior? A year. The ark's being built for a long time. People are standing right next to it. There's 
the gospel being preached day after day. There is a need for a boat coming and the door is open right now. And people want nothing to do with it. And then through the judgment, eight people and a whole bunch of animals are saved. And you begin to think, who is the ark? Who? It's a type of Christ. And you begin to see the Bible like this. It's not about facts and stories and behavior. It is about behavior. It's about what pleases God. But it's primarily about God, human fallenness, and God's provision of grace in a great Savior, Jesus. You sing that story to them, and that is what makes God shine and look glorious, lovely, which then draws out love. That's what we're trying to impart to them. Love for God in Christ. Who imparts it? Parents. What? Love for God in Christ, living in the heart. Primarily by means of the Gospel being elaborated on in all kinds of different angles, in all kinds of situations. And the last point is how. And here's where I want to be a little detailed, but... I'm not going to be able to be very detailed because of the setting and because of the time, but I do want to point out that we very regularly, almost every quarter, have life training classes in the first hour about this sort of stuff. How do you do this? That's the best setting. Not a monologue, but a dialogue. That's the best setting to work it through. What does this mean for me? I've got teenagers. What does it mean for me? I've got a two-year-old. What does it mean for me? My kids are gone, but I still have a lot of contact with them. You can talk that through and think through some of the materials that we have and some great books, some of which are on the book table. This also would be a good conversation topic for the community groups this afternoon. As you're going to be discussing the sermon, many of you are going to a community group this afternoon. You're going to have time to discuss this, work on it. What does this mean? How do I do this? But let me try to give some tracks to run on. How? Parents are to teach their children deliberately... In the natural flow of life. And I put it like that to kind of create two emphases that are connected but are distinct. Parents are to teach their kids deliberately in the natural flow of life. They're connected because the natural flow of life needs to be deliberate too. And the deliberate teaching happens in life, but I want to kind of make two distinct points there. Starting in verse 7 again. And I would briefly point out that if we were to logically think this through, we really should start in the fifth commandment. And again, I might refer you back to that. But the first step, the first bit of how is discipline in the home. Why does God give the fifth commandment? Obey, honor your mother and father. Not just because he's concerned about obedience, but because he knows chapter 6 is coming. There's stuff that needs to be passed on from parent to kid. And any teacher will tell you it is nearly impossible to teach somebody who in no way whatsoever respects you, will not listen to you, and is inclined to reject whatever you say. Very difficult to teach that sort of person. So the fifth commandment logically comes first. But assuming that, then we're moving on to verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, 
and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Diligent teaching, you're walking through life, life talking. To teach diligently is deliberately, with focused effort, even when it's not easy and it's confusing. Probably especially when it's not easy and when it's confusing. It involves perseverance. You need a plan if you want to be diligent rather than just haphazard and come as it may. A plan which includes a time and a place and some content and a good bit of determination as well. There are a lot of ways to do this. One of the best models is what for centuries has been called family worship. Sometimes called a family devotional time, but family worship is a good way of thinking about it because it connects you and your mind to the worship service on Sunday morning and there are similarities. The smallest church is your house. It's a worship service at home. And like a corporate worship service, there are three elements to family worship. And this has been, I think that one of the tragedies of today is that what I'm talking about is foreign to many of us. At many times throughout church history and in every period of church history where the church was strong, this was nearly universal. Families would talk about this as a matter of course. Family worship consists of three basic elements. Scripture, prayer, and song. And if you just target 15 minutes, like we first targeted, 15 minutes right after dinner, it's not hard to get five minutes on each one of those. Five minutes of Bible, five minutes of prayer, five minutes of singing. This is a concept that I have, I have heard about and have known about for a long time, but have been very, very spotty in. I've done it and then dozed. Done it and dozed. Over the last, let's say, year or so, I've become much more diligent in it. We still don't do it every day. And I have yet to break into weeping in the middle of it. Sometimes the kids break into snoring in the middle of it. It's just true. Sometimes we do it late at night and you can watch them begin to list. But... But the point is, you, you do it. And over time, 15 minutes becomes 20 before you noticed it. And 20 becomes 25. And you can't get it done in less than half an hour. You see, these three elements. And, and over time, not just the time expands, but the understanding expands. And, and your skill at it expands. We spend five minutes, we've done a whole bunch of different kinds of things. We've used catechisms that are basically questions and answers at children's level to teach doctrine. We've used books like Pilgrim's Progress and others of, of that sort. Currently, we're just reading the Bible. We've read through the book of Genesis. We're reading through the book of Matthew. If you have young kids, you probably want to emphasize Old Testament stories or the stories of the gospel because they hold attention a little better. They're easier to to. Work through, as long as you understand that it's not about Noah, it's about something else. But you work through five minutes. That's, that's reading a couple of paragraphs, making a few comments, asking a couple of questions. And then you pray about one thing you learned from the text and one thing that they're facing in school or in the neighborhood. You can pray 
Sometimes I just pray. Sometimes we all pray. And then we sing. Depending on time, sometimes we don't sing, but I would highly recommend singing. And sing doctrinally sound songs. Because those things, even more than what you say, those things will go into their minds and stick there. A couple weeks ago, we, we usually go to bed right after our, our family worship time. Kids go to bed. And so we were tucking them in, and uh, one of uh, my children said, she was humming the song that we just finished singing, she said, I can't get that song out of my head. And I thought, I know. That's the point. <laughs> it is the point. That that would run through her mind while she sleeps. And have you ever noticed how frequently the thing that you're last thinking about is on your mind when you get up? It happens to me all the time. I don't know if it happens to you or not. It happens to me all the time. There's a chance it will be on her mind when she gets up the next morning too. Sing doctrinally solid songs. To help with that a little bit, Nathan's put together a, a photocopied worship book. You can pick them up back there um, for free. That are songs that we sing here in church. Some hymns, some more contemporary songs. Use them to sing. they got the music there. You can play them on piano or guitar. It'll help your kids to become more familiar with the songs we sing here. Scripture, prayer, song. Fifteen minutes. Deliberately teach. There are other ways. If you homeschool, you've got some great advantages there. You have a Bible class. If you go to ICS, we have a Bible class here. There are other ways to deliberately teach, but if you're in a Christian school, it's not the parent thing. and That's an important element. But this be clearly shown to be what's passionate, what my dad and my mom are passionate about. Critical element. The other emphasis there, the, the life talking. Verse 7 says, you deliberately teach, and then as you're walking here, and as you're at home, and when you get up, and when you go to bed, it's all throughout life you're talking. It's a running dialogue. Not just in the 15 minutes after dinner, but all of the rest of the day. All of the rest of the week. There's a running conversation that's taking that stuff that they're learning maybe at your side here in church, at the family devotional time, and it's running it all throughout life. If you start looking for this, it pops up everywhere. We're at the mall, or we're at a restaurant, or unfortunately sometimes in the parking lot right out here, and we see a woman dressed immodestly, and my daughters, I have three daughters, they've been taught some things about what modesty is, and they notice it, and they comment, which provides all kinds of opportunity for conversation. A chance to reinforce modesty. A chance to talk about judgmentalism. A chance to talk about the heart, and what often lies behind the showing off of the body in an attempt to find approval and acceptance from other people. A chance to talk about how loving Christ above all things focuses you on pleasing Him and finding satisfaction in Him and frees you from having to serve other people and live according to their whims and their fashion statements. So many opportunities from just keeping your eyes open in the parking lot. Do you take every one of those opportunities every single time? Of course not. You'd never get anywhere. You'd be constantly talking about that thing, and then the next thing, and it would be impossible. 
But you start looking for them and you take the strategic ones. You start listening to what's on the radio and having conversations about it. You start listening to the conversations going on in the back seat. It's a great book on the book table called Everyday Talk, which is excellent on this subject. It takes Deuteronomy 6 and runs with this idea. You listen, and when they ask the question, Dad, what does this mean? Verse 20. What does this mean? You've got the chance, the opportunity right there to unpack and to explain, to show the gospel some different aspect of it. That's some of how you do it. Deliberately, I would highly commend you to a, a family worship time and an everyday talk. Who? Parents. What? In part to their hearts, love for God in Christ, use the gospel. How? By deliberately instructing and by being deliberate in all of the rest of life. God has assigned parents the responsibility and the privilege raising your kids to know Him. So seize that with everything in you. Let me pray. Father, we're talking about the impossible here, and so we ask You, would You do a work in us first, in, in us as, as parents, if we have kids at home right now, in us as parents, to convict us, to encourage us, to give us assistance, do a work in our children to open their eyes and awaken them. Lord, I pray particularly for those whose kids have left home already, whether they're on the right path or not. Lord, give them hope and give them an awareness that they can still be an influence. Call those kids back that have strayed, we pray. Strengthen those who are walking hard after you. Lord, would you be at work here in our church to make us the type of community the Deuteronomy envisions a community that passes on faithfulness from generation to generation to generation. Make us that kind of people. By your grace, we pray. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.